Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scott's Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello! In each episode we'll invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! Oh, oh what a God. great pass! And this week, our guest is the writer of Bob Servant, Eric Ernie and Me, and the recent hit series, Guilt, Neil Forsyth. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on, Neil. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for, for joining us tonight, Neil. Uh, and we've picked out a, a, a relative, well, I'm saying relatively old one. Let's face it, it's an old magazine. It's a gold magazine from February the 1st of 1969. So it's actually, I'm, I'm guessing it's older than any of us here. It's older than me. And I'm guessing it's older than yourself. Comfortably, yeah. comfortably. <laughs> Good stuff. So we'll do. We'll, as we do, we'll start from the the front page and just work our way in. So I'm just going to pick out a few things. There's, to be honest, there's not much to pick out from the front page. So it has a, a photo of Gordon Banks in of Stoke City in England, and he's smiling at the camera. And it's actually quite a close up photograph, so you can't really make out much to do with the kit or anything. But what we can make out is a blue top with a round collar. That's that's about it, really. The magazine costs one S and six D, which is one shilling and six pence. Now that's listen. This isn't out in my head. I've, I've researched this. Twelve pennies in a shilling, so that works out as eighteen old pence, which is the equivalent of eight pence decimal. So there's the geekiness right there, out the way, right at the beginning. So it's worth eight pence. Um, it's twenty six in the series, so it's a relatively new magazine. It's only um, half a year old at this point. The Gold Magazine. And the main title on the page says, A Report to Shock Every Footballer. I mean, there's not much to talk about that front page other than, a, you know, a good photograph of Gordon Banks there. I think I think you've covered that one off. <laughs> okay, well, we'll jump into pages two and three then. And the section I'm going to look at here is at the bottom and it's, it says, Cover Man. So this is about the cover page. And it says, The, the keeper who grooms his own successors, Gordon Banks. So the, the walk is similar so is the run-up for goal kicks. The seemingly casual amble back to goal after clearances bears the same stamp. So does the punch-out and the handling of crosses. The name is Peter Shilton. The trademarks are those of Gordon Banks, Stoke and former Leicester City goalkeeper, our cover man. It says that Gordon Banks has taken Peter Shilton under his wing and taught him so well that he has moved on from Leicester City to Stoke in order to make way for Shilton. He's watched on as Shilton has progressed to challenge for his own England spot. There is little to suggest that the king is ready to abdicate as Banks has remained Sir Alf Ramsey's number one. So yeah, that that's obviously Peter Peter Shelton starting to come into his own at this point. So there's something I, I just noticed when the the photo, so there's a photograph um, Bobby Charlton's diary above it, and there's a photograph of Matt Busby being being hugged by some of the Manchester United players, and you can see Brian Kidd there, a very yeah. young looking Brian Kidd there indeed. So that that was quite interesting as well. I thought it was amazing the Charlton piece on Matt Busby and how much you, he could have been talking about Fergie 
30, uh, well, 30, 40 years later when Ferguson retired, it's qualities and the little touches that he did around the club. And it's clear that Ferguson must have taken so much from, from Busby. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I, I'm, go, I'm going to jump on to page four. Well, I, was, I just had a wee, a wee thing to say about the Gordon, the Gordon Banks yeah. thing. Uh, just just on that, just like the keeper of Grooms, his own successor. So when Banks had his car crash at Stoke City, uh, Stoke City signed Mike McDonald from Clay Bank to ostensibly re- replace him. Uh, I, I spoke to Mike a couple of years ago, and uh, the, the way he tells it, so it was basically about the day after. Uh, so Mike goes down to Stoke City, uh, and he goes training on the Friday, and Tony Waddington, the manager, says to him, right, you're in the team for tomorrow. And it was Leicester City they were playing against. Uh, it was Peter Shelton who was in goal. And uh, he says, right, but come with me first. So Waddington drives him uh, into the city, and then Mike says, they go to this building. He says, it's obviously a hospital. We've got the back stairs. He says, I'm no thinking till we get up there. And Waddington says to him, get through, get through that door. And he goes in, and it's Gordon Banks is lying in his hospital bed. And this is, <laughs> Banks is saying to him, says, right, says, Great to meet you. So you're obviously a good goalkeeper. The Tories signed you. He's like, this is what's happening. Leicester City, Frank Worthington, don't worry about him. Dennis Smith will take care of him. And Mike's saying, this is, the guy's lying in his hospital bed with a patch <laughs> over his eye, his career in ruins. He says, all he's concerned about is me and how well I'm going to play and keep my confidence up. He said, it was, he said, it was fantastic. And it turns out Mike only played about nine games because they bought Peter Shelton not long afterwards. Uh, but he, but Mike stayed there for quite a while and uh, he said, could you be basically, he was training me Banks and Shelton every day. And he said, it was amazing. He said, I was training me basically the two best goalkeepers in the world. Where did he go? Where did he go after that? He came, up to, to... He came up to Hibs mm. right. a yeah. few years later. I think he only played nine games for Stoke. Uh, but he said he kept in touch with Gordon Banks right up to his, to his death. Uh, he said he was, he was a fantastic, fantastic guy. That's and that's great. kind of how it just sort of, sort of bears that out. Uh, as, as well there you know it's a great great thing for him to do to be you know stuck in his hospital bed you know and with the injury he had it's like is he ever going to play again and you know one of the first thoughts is right who, who's replacing me get them in and let's make sure they're going to be up to speed and they know what to expect I mean it's just the, the mark of the man there isn't it yeah okay so on to page four here and it's the goal editor, so this is just a little editorial piece, and it's Alan Hughes says. So his first, his first comment here is, Scotland for the World Cup, question mark. And he says, that's a matter of opinion. A crystal ball job for the future, unless you happen to have a kilt and Tammy in the wardrobe upstairs. But what is certain now, 17 months before the great Mexico fiesta, is, is the Scots have never been in with a better chance. And it's nearly all down to one man, Bobby Brown. He was not everybody's choice when he came to power, but Brown changed their minds even after losing to England that ultimately cost them their place in the finals of the European Nations Cup. But look at Scotland now. Team morale was higher than Ben Nevis. They are better equipped tactically, and the days when the big Scottish personalities went out and played as much for themselves as the team are gone. Brown, the Marco Polo of Scottish football, has covered the British Isles so extensively that Scottish players even Anglos know there is no chance of them being overlooked. Brown even went out to Cyprus and supervised hotels, food, etc. before Scotland's recent World Cup match. That was almost unheard of by Scottish standards. So, I mean, he's, 
the editor Alan Hughes here, he's given Scotland a few a few compliments, but he's he's taken them away again with his wee sort of his wee sort of digs that's going on as well about the the kilt and the tammy and the upstairs wardrobe and the what was the other one he mentioned? Oh, the, the team morale was higher than Ben Nevis. Okay, I'm being a wee bit I'm being a wee bit um, harsh on him. You know what I mean? It's like they can't help themselves. I think it's more. I don't think. I think it's more the the kind of reaching for the cliche style of yeah. journalism that this this is in the proud tradition of, which I really I quite enjoy, quite nostalgic <laughs> for it. I think that football journalism, I find reading this, it reminded me of even reading like The Pink in, the, in it when I lived in Edinburgh in the 90s and even the Dundee Evening Telegraph. I think there was a style of, of football writing that was, it was just a quite breezy and sort of light and you know, no harm in, in sort of being a little bit cliche ridden and but I quite enjoy it. It's so readable and 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 kind of fun. Um, and then, but then that particular piece, because I obviously me, I'm quite a bit younger than when this one came out. But I I, I knew that around '78, obviously, I was born in '78. But I knew that around the kind of the hubristic approach to that World Cup from Scotland. But I didn't really fully appreciate that in these World Cups before that the hopes were also that high. Mm. <laughs> it makes me think, when did we not learn by 78? How did it <laughs> but um but when you look at the team from that time and, and even the results, was it we because we lost in Germany, that was the problem, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lost three two, I think, in Germany. Right, yeah. yeah. But I, I think it was interesting when he said that previously Scottish players have went out to play for themselves rather than the team. And yeah. I guess I guess when you when you hear people talk about some of the players from back then that sort of backs it up because they talk about they would just go take the ball and go for a dribble and run up the park and down the park with it and that that sort of suggests somebody who if, if you're playing it's cool or as a wee boy or something you'd be calling them greedy wouldn't you mm-hmm. so it certainly is, is covered by that but yeah we never made it there's a surprise Okay, on to page five. So just across the page there, and we're on to Derby face Cardiff in crunch match. So there's a photo of Dave Mackay here, and it says, No tension at the top for Mackay's men. So Dave Mackay, the barrel-chested Scot who has given Derby a welcome heart transplant, leads his team into battle again on Saturday in the crunch match that could decide the championship of the second division. And the fighting heart of Mighty Mac may well be the deciding factor in Derby's favour when they take on top promotion rivals Cardiff City. On the previous 1-1 draw earlier in the season, Mackay says, Well, they looked a good side at home, and we were perhaps fortunate to take a point. I'm sure this one will just be as hard. They are all vital, but this one is more vital for Cardiff than for us. And from a team that narrowly escaped relegation last season, shipping 78 goals, Mackay has transformed them into a promotion-hunting outfit that now look ready to return to the first division. Uh, Mackay says, a very promising youngster is John McGovern, who has only recently come into the first team. He's a young Scot who's joined as a winger, but has now been successfully converted into a midfield man. Does Dave at 34 feel the pressure of being top more than most? He says, not really. Personally, I enjoy this type of tension because it means that every game is a big game, and so do the boys. Taking your your previous point there, Neil, about the, the writing of it, it's something that I've certainly noticed in the the magazines from the 60s, 70s, not so much into the 80s and 90s, is that there is a, there is a, a colour to the, the journalism, I suppose. It's, it's proper writing. It's, it's people who obviously are enjoying what they're writing. 
Yeah, drawing what they're writing, and it's a platform. What it's much more in these stories is, I think if you read a Saturday or Sunday paper now, then it's the, the journalists, particularly in the broadsheets, are going all out for their own input in, the, in their kind of input into the piece and presence in the piece and the fluidity of their style. And partly that's not their fault. Partly it's because when you get to the players' quotes, they're so banal mm. and inane. Uh, they're just meaningless. So to get anything distinctive into a piece, the journalists are sort of, you know, working every ounce of what they can do. Whereas I think what's what was lovely and refreshing reading this was the the quote and Dave McQuay's Dave McQuay's quotes. There, they're so open and honest, and there's so much humility to the players of that generation. I think it's um, and distinctive. You can hear the voice of the player. They're not filtering themselves as to through a. PR department or, or anything else, or speak saying saying some inane phrase that they heard some other players say the week before. It's um, it's really refreshing. You really feel you're having a conversation with the with the players here, and I think the journalism can sort of take a slight step back as a result and not work too hard because you've got good stories within it. So um, I I really enjoyed that. I thought it was quite refreshing. This one, and then there's a Mike Summerby interview later on that particularly jumped out for me. Also, Dave McQuay seems to have about six articles in this magazine. Is that right? <laughs> Keeps popping up. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it's, a, it's a theme that, that comes through all these magazines that we've spoke about, Tom, is, you know, especially where, where players have their own columns. So, you know, there was a tartan talk with Danny McGrain or Kenny Dalglish or Derek Johnson. And I always thought you could get the personalities through and even though yeah. It's it's not written by them. It's as we've had a few journalists on who have you know backed up the fact that it'll be somebody phoning them up, and you know getting a piece off them. But it's just done in a certain style that you, you sort of think that, that that's how you imagine, and it probably is how they are. So you know, I just think the fact that the journalists have managed to capture the the style of the actual players themselves, I think that's absolutely brilliant, and it comes yeah. across really well. Just and then we just have to quickly touch on Booter, the cartoon at the bottom of the page, which is uh, it's definitely offensive. I'm just not quite worked out how. It's a, it's a, a rather opaque joke about the chairman's daughter. <laughs> right. See, see, I Tom will back. I, I sort of steer clear of any cartoons in the magazines because I'm generally <laughs> let down by them. But maybe. Maybe I'm missing out on a few things here, but no, yeah, I, I would not. No, based on Booter, I would uh, proceed with your. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's it's not one of the one of the better ones. No, I I tend to stand up for the cartoonists in this because I, I know sort of in that era these guys were sort of rattling these kind of things out for uh, football magazines, car magazines, golf magazines, you know, and the, the daily papers and all that as well, you yeah. know. So, but perhaps some of the jokes are quite up to up to muster. Yeah. But yeah, that is one of the poorer ones we've seen. Right, okay, well, well, I'll, I'll leave that. I'll look at that later on. It's just that wee point you, you brought up there, Andy, and that Dave McKay bit, where, he, where he's highlighting John McGovern mm-hmm. as, a, as a talent. That's what, 60, 69, this, this magazine? Yeah. 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 John, John McGovern there was being highlighted as a, as a promising uh, youngster. Mm. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the guy had a lot of success through the 70s. So John McGovern won two two European titles and didn't yeah. get a Scottish cap. Yeah. That's right, isn't it? He never got a Scotland a Scotland cap. No, Incredible. two European cups. Won the league with Forest. Won the league with Derby County. Was never capped. That's it. I mean, there must be a story behind that as to why. Well, there's a wee, there's a wee, well, there's a wee story in in his autobiography. 
where, where he says uh, the 1978 World Cup squad was being announced and the local journalist in Nottingham had phoned up Ali McLeod to say, how many Forest players are you going to name in the squad? And McLeod had said, all of them. So the journalist had went out and hired kilts and he got kilts for Kenny Burns, John Robertson, I think John O'Hare, John McGovern. And he'd, they'd taken photographs of them in a forest top and a kilt. And then the next day, the, the squad had come out and it was it was uh, everybody apart from McGovern. Mm-hmm. And the journalist had phoned up and said, I thought you told me, wait, I've wasted money on this. I can't even run this. We can't even run this picture. Uh, and, and apparently McLeod had said, I didn't realise he was Scottish. What? Uh, apparently. I mean, but I mean, uh, apparently he'd said he didn't realise he was Scottish. Wow. I mean, but, but, you know, he'd been playing a long career and obviously Jock Steen was a manager when he won the two European Cups. So it doesn't yeah. really explain why he never got... Yeah, it's not just one manager that's... that's not picked them, is it? There's a lot a lot of Scottish players have those stories about the ones who like Ralph Mill and Dundee United in his book and I, I, I knew Ralph and he was a lovely man and he he um he talked about how would it have been Jock Steen? It might have been Jock Steen actually I phoned McLean and said I'm gonna give uh gonna give Ralph Mill the game again. I think it was a friendly give him a cap and McLean talked him out of it and got him to take Davy Dodds instead. <laughs> Um, and Ralph found out about this, and I don't think he ever kind of forgave what him. Was, what was the thinking behind behind that? I oh, probably had some one of his spectacular yeah. transgressions that week, and <laughs> wasn't McLean's favourite player when he got the call. But yeah, you you would have few run ins with Jim McLean yourself growing up, Neil, haven't you? Yes, I, well, yeah, I kind of um, he, I, he was a friend of my great uncle Bill's and Brody Ferry. They were at the same bowling club. Although that ended rather spectacularly when McLean was banned for uh, abusing the umpires. But but having said that, Uncle Bill managed to kind of uh, cash in that relationship to get me up to interview Jim when I was uh, 16 for a school project. And I always thought this was uh, was great that I had a sort of my McLean moment where I went in and he said, uh, I was in my school uniform, he said, right, and you come into the boardroom and he said, uh, uh, show me your questions. And I handed them over. This was for a school project. And he scored half of them out and handed it back. <laughs> but the other one I had was for him was maybe a year later. I was I used to sell programs at Tannadice. And me and my, me and another program seller, we used to just, it was brilliant. You got there really early and you just walk anywhere around the ground because you had your fluorescent orange bag. So you had it. This was like a VIP access all areas, Tannadice. Anyway, we were in the changing room. And me and the other guy, and we just heard, uh, what the fuck are you two doing here? And it turned <laughs> around and it was wee Jim. And almost had a teenage, two teenage heart attacks in, in Dundee. But we started, so he said, right, come with me. Took us upstairs. And we were just about passing out with fear. And he took us into the trophy room. And he talked us around the whole trophy room. And he talked us around each game and... How, what the you know the finals that we'd lost the finals we'd won and the teams and what he'd done and it was it was just incredible for about fifteen minutes this is before he was chairman at the time but you know sure he had some better stuff to do <laughs> and, um, and then sent us packing and it was oh it was amazing yeah he was he was such a heroic figure and um, that's very sad he's in ill health now mm-hmm. but um, yeah he's just he's a Titanic figure really in my childhood I'd say. Yeah, the the story you mentioned there about the the bowling club, um, I'm sure I've got a an old article on it somewhere. I'll look out, look it out. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely made the press. Yeah, he was, he just couldn't handle it. I remember my, my, my uncle Bill was on the committee that had to ban him, <laughs> and he said that he said to McLean, like, 
Jim, why don't you just calm down? <laughs> I was, yeah. was a bit. I think the horse, the horse had bolted by then, seeing as he was in his early fifties. I was entrenched in the personality. I think. Uh, lots of stories about Jim, no doubt, from many people. Right. Okay. So moving on to this is a moving on to page six. This is quite a, a scary article here with a scary photograph, and it's looking at the policeman's right hand and reflect on the sad sight of soccer in the 60s. So this is at Millwall, January 25th, 1969. And it says, a British football ground. And around the pitch walks a policeman, in his hands a knife. Proof, indeed, that the press does not exaggerate soccer violence. Or shall we be accused again of sensationalism by well-meaning do-gooders who do not know what they are talking about? So the photo shows a policeman escorting a young man, probably in his early to mid-twenties maybe, uh, around the side of the pitch and he's walking in front of the copper with his hands in his pockets he's not been restrained or handcuffed or anything and the policeman's holding a knife with a, I'd say about a six inch blade and there's a number of the crowd in the background looking on with great interest it's just quite a quite a amazing and horrific photograph isn't it there's just so much going on there some nonchalant as well isn't mm. it yeah it's almost as if you know this is nothing really to see here you know, you, you in those situations nowadays, you would expect the the guy to be pinned to the floor and handcuffed, and it's just as if it's just another another day at the football, which I, I suppose it sort of was becoming at that point, and that's the point of the the article. But yeah, pretty sure you're not supposed to carry a knife like that as well. No, no. <laughs> so just uh, underneath this article is there's a picture of Jockstein with an absolutely brilliant little article, which um, is. It's sort of become famous over the years. So the little story is Celtic manager Jock Steen received a telephone call recently from Inter Milan, the Italian club beaten by the Celtic in the European Cup final in 1967. And it went like this. The Inter official said, we will pay Celtic £100,000 if you let us have your right winger, Jimmy Johnson. And Steen replied, for which match? That's just an absolutely brilliant little story, that. I hope it's true. I really hope that's true. So on to page eight, and there's a absolutely fantastic young photograph of Joe Harper there, and the title is "Next Morton Player to Head to England, Joe Harper." So at the top left of the page is a large photograph of a very young and fresh-looking Joe Harper, currently at, at Morton. He would have just turned 21 at the time of this magazine, although obviously the photograph could have been taken any time before that. Now the accompanying article says. The next Morton player to head to England could be 20-year-old striker Joe Harper. Harper, Morton's top scorer, impressed several English clubs, including Blackpool, who watched him in recent games. The clubs will be back for a second look. Harper was transferred from Morton to Huddersfield in 1967 for 35000 and then was signed back this season for 15000 after his stay there. Now, as a little spoiler here, he actually would sign for Aberdeen in September of this year. So I'd just like to take a wee look through Joe Harper's profile. So Joseph Montgomery Harper is his full name. And he was born in January 1948 in Greenock. So as the article says, he started at Morton, spent some time at Huddersfield, back to Morton, then signed for Aberdeen 69-72, to 72, scoring 68 goals in 102 league games. Moved down south eventually again to Everton, and then back up to Hibs, joined Aberdeen again in 76-81. Then had spells at Peterhead and Keith, and he has four Scottish caps with two two goals. He's also managed at Peterhead and Huntley, 
and his honours include the Scottish First Division with with Morton in 66-67, when the Premier Division 79-80 with Aberdeen, Scottish Cup 69-70 when they beat Celtic. Uh, they won the Scottish League Cup 76-77, Drybra Cup 71-72, and he, as an individual he won the European Bronze Boot in 71-72, and he's in the Scottish Hall of Fame as well, 2019. So he's he's got a pretty decent pretty decent record there, Joe Harper, and I certainly know one or two people who absolutely idolise him, Morton fans and Aberdeen fans in particular. Do we have any any thoughts or memories about Joe? I think it's just, throughout this magazine, I thought it was just really interesting, This well, the amount of Scottish kind of influence within it, but also the number of suggested transfers like this or completed transfers like this where players were just very easily going from sometimes the Scottish First Division to the English, sorry, Scottish Second Division to the English First Division. Um, not, 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 as well as obviously the top division to the, to the other top division. It was just, you really got the feeling reading this that football was on such a par mm-hmm. between the two countries that uh, players could kind of flip between the two and obviously financially in a par as well because yeah. lots of accounts of players turning down moves so, you know, there's a, there's a bit later on Tommy McLean turning down Chelsea from yeah. uh, from Kilmarnock, um, and it's just it it just it's strange looking at it now. The kind of the levelness of the playing fields between the two countries and, and football is astounding, really. Mm. Yeah, you don't really know if well, you can guess, but you don't know for a fact whether it was maybe England were down closer to us or we were raised up I think we were probably raised up in terms of yeah. the quality that we had and the depth of the quality and as you say you know players coming from the second division going straight to top teams in England I mean there was there's always players going from Albion Rovers down to England Tony Green being one of them and you know players from Morton I, I don't know if Morton were in the top division when Joe Jordan went down and Gordon McQueen as well went down south so Absolutely, absolutely. And even the Highland League, there's some little snippets later of players being signed from the Highland League by yeah. by English clubs and yeah. stuff. So it's um, no, it's it's amazing. I no, I think that. And then I love that little story at the bottom of that page about the Weedram Warmsakis. Did you see that? It's um, Hamilton players were giving given port and lemon before the games <laughs> at this point. Yeah, absolutely. But only a spoonful. They were only getting a spoonful of it. <laughs> you can just imagine them going to the back of the queue as soon as they're. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so in between it is, I mean, the, you talk about the, the Scottish content. So this whole page, apart from a coupon to order your, your goal match, it's all Scottish. There's another one about uh, St Mirren. And the title is Europe. It's a secret at St Mirren. And it says, whisper it. St Mirren, the team eliminated from the Scottish League Cup earlier this season by second division side Hamilton Ackies are in with a chance of qualifying for Europe for the first time, but the word Europe is not readily voiced at Love Street. Alex Wright, the manager, explained, If we look too far ahead, we could ask for trouble. Although we must have a fine chance of reaching Europe, I have never talked about it to the players. I don't want to set them a target of getting into one of the top competitions. This would put pressure on them and they would become over-anxious. This season we've been playing quietly, always surprising people. We were we weren't beaten until our twelfth match. Then everyone thought we would crack up. We were still in the top six by the end of December. I want the team to keep pegging away, perhaps unnoticed, until it suddenly dawns on everyone. Look at St Mirren, they could get into Europe. I think that points right now in this article, isn't it? That's the point that people are saying, look at they could get into Europe. 
However, Wright says that to get into Europe, they must do well in the Scottish Cup or finish in the top five. And he says, people could say that even to be in the top half of the league after coming straight up from the second division is a great achievement. But we're not content with this. We must aim higher. And just as a wee spoiler, they would finish 11th out of 18 on 32 points. Uh, the same as Morton and Dundee who finished uh, above them on goal difference or about them. They would only actually win three more games and draw two more for the rest of the season after this article. And they were also dumped out of the Scottish Cup in the second round by Airdrie after a replay. So no Europe. So this, I guess, was the 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 bogey. The bogey, what do they call it? The the curse of the, the commentator. This is the curse of the, the, the magazine article. So they, they, they only won three more games after this. But yeah, you're right. The the, the other one, the Port and Lemon with... Uh, who was it? The director, director and manager, John Crines. So it's actually, I've, I've, I've heard this a few times and it's usually like say, the, the kit man or something like that, but the director manager given those things is absolutely brilliant. And just on the opposite page, we have a full colour photo of Jim McCallyog of Sheffield Wednesday. And it's quite, again, it's quite a quite a close shot. It doesn't show too much of the strip, but we can see it's, it's the Sheffield... Uh, Wednesday blue body with white sleeves a round white collar simple plain and there's a couple of people in the background so my guess would be this is taken during one of the photo shoots probably earlier in the season so again we'll have a wee look at Jim McCallio Carey's profile he was born in Glasgow September 1946 and he started off in the Leeds United youth team in 63 before he moved to Chelsea where he spent two seasons not really getting too many games Moved to Sheffield Wednesday in 1965, played 150 league games, scoring 19 times. Had uh, a spell at Wolves between 1969-74, then Manchester United for a season, then moved to Southampton, over at the States, Chicago Sting, and then he moved to SFK Lean in Oslo, and Lincoln City in Runcorn, so he started moving about to all over the place really. Uh, he's got five Scotland caps, scored one goal, and managed at Runcorn in Halifax Town as well. So, a little piece of information, you know, he apparently currently runs the Langside Bread and Breakfast in Fenwick, Inertia. So, Jim McCallyog, any, anything to say on him? Great to see the footballer publican career path. <laughs> yeah. uh, Eamon Bannon's got a B&B in Edinburgh, doesn't he? It's... Uh, generation but it was uh but he also yeah i read his bio as well and he seemed to he think he, he seemed to have a different wife at each pub the two things are connected yeah okay so just moving on to page 11 so page 11 here who's colorblind so it says what's in a color arsenal will wear gold for the league cup final against swindon next month and I've received protests from supporters who believe that this will be a permanent change. What's in a colour? Real Madrid made all white famous throughout the world, even though Swansea had worn it for years. A manager's comment on that Real strip was, it gave the impression of speed and skill. It's a lasting one. What's in a colour? Wolves gold is ideal on a snowy surface under floodlights. Proof, a replayed cup tie between Wolves and Aston Villa a few years ago. Villa's claret and blue merged with the crowd, whereas Wolves' golden stood out like beacons. Wolves' passes were accurate, Villa's invariably off the target. So again, quite quite a colourful piece of journalism there. But yeah, the bit about the Arsenal fans protested and were angry about a permanent change, it's, 
it's typical of football fans, and you're a Dundee United fan, aren't you, Neil? So yeah. it's amazing how people, many people, I'm sure most Dundee United fans know that Tangerine was probably sort of mid mid to late sixties when it first came in. Yeah, I think I think from memory it's because we went, uh, they did a uh, went to America. Mm-hmm. Was it pre-season or off-season and took the place in the American League of an American team that wore. Yeah, it's Dallas Tornadoes, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, and kept it going from then. But no, historically it was it was white, I believe, with black change kit. I think there's a black change kit in this magazine. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. it does look. Unfortunately, it looks dark blue. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> that's definitely a, a an issue with the, the photograph. Uh, I think even even the United, the, the you know, it's become between tangerine and orange. The shades are kind of all over the shop if you look over the last twenty years. But it's. Um, it's, pretty, it's a gearish sort of colour, I suppose, but it's, uh, you know, it's certainly my generation, that's what you would completely associate it with. Yeah, but it's just the idea that, you know, if if fans had complained about that to, to the sort of degree, you know, protests and stuff here, then, you know, sometimes change is fine. Just give it a bit of time and it grows on you. And... Well, it definitely gives them a bit of identity, I think. I think, I think actually it's one of the reasons why when I was... Um, younger we were going abroad if we went to as a family we used to go to ibiza every year and like people would say to us all the time oh dundee united like, you know the spaniards and things so this was after the barcelona games uh-huh. yeah 78 and um european cup semi in a run of 83 84 and, and so on and it was and all the other great european nights we had but i do think that the strips made us very memorable and recognizable and i do think that's why a lot of the time when you went Abroad as a young Dundonian, my generation, people would bring up the club. And brilliantly to my friends who were Dundee fans, they'd say, where are you from Dundee? Ah, Dundee United. <laughs> so that was uh, yeah. just a little bonus. Yeah, it was actually, we, we actually had a Dundee United strip, the Adidas one with the with the three stripes in our, in our house growing up for some reason. So <laughs> it must have been during the glory years and we were maybe doing a wee bit of glory hunting, I don't know. But yeah, it was certainly in there and it was... Crack. It was the, the the text badge, you know the the DUFC as well, which was yeah, which the which is in this magazine as well, isn't it? I think that's my favourite badge actually. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to pages twelve and thirteen. So page twelve is a it's just a black and white full page photograph of Jack Howarth of Aldershot Town. So Jack is the club's record scorer, one hundred and ninety six goals in all competitions, and it's just great to find out a name for a club that is iconic to that club so Jack Howarth Aldershot I'm sure he's probably a, an absolute hero and a legend to fans of Aldershot up until this point I didn't know who he was so there we go educated over on page 13 it says he's praying so there's just a little while I think you want to talk about the the Mike Summerby one but before we do that just the bottom right there is a little article it says if Celtic repeat their Lisbon year by winning the European Cup Scottish League Scottish Cup and Scottish League Cup Glasgow bookmaker Tony Queen will be £70,000 out of pocket. After laying 75 to 1 and 50 to 1 against Celtic pulling it off, Queen had to close the book and pray. I think he was okay in that one. He was best pals with Jock Steen at the time, I believe, Tony Queen. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't know who he was. So do you, do you want to talk about the, the Mike Summerby one there, Neil? Well, no, I just, as I said earlier, I thought it was it's just so refreshing. He's so honest and the humility... I think all the players of that generation, when they, they just, it's just, you know, and I used to, I started off as a freelance journalist doing Scottish football stuff. And it's, um, 
it's just very, you know, they just, this generation get asked a question and just answer completely honestly without any thought about how it reflects on them or their club or, or, or how the PR department of the club are going to think about the quotes that they're offering. And it just feels like a very different age and definitely a better age journalistically, mm-hmm. I think. Do you have any thoughts on why, why that is? Um, is it to do with the proliferation of media and, you know, the fact that it can go out to everybody and everybody can get back rather than, you know, people would read this and if they had a problem with it, they had a difficult way to actually get back to the player themselves directly. So what's your thoughts on what's the difference being that players now are they're, they're protected? I think, I, think it's, I think it's actually fairly recent, to be honest, because I was um, I used to do a lot of freelance writing up in Scotland in sort of, uh, when would that be, early, early noughties, really. And even then, I remember going through when... I see a lot of work for the men's magazines and FHM and Maxim and stuff. And I remember going through Neil Lennon was the Celtic manager. And I, because um, it was a freelance and these magazines, it was, they were sort of had web uh, websites, but they weren't particularly present online. They were still very much print driven. I kind of had a, a little scam going where I could almost resell interviews to some degree every six months to different magazines. And Neil Lennon, um, I'd still had to go and do it because I'd have a photographer and the magazine wanted to get their own copy and everything. But I interviewed Lennon three times for, th- I think, probably FHM, Maxine, and probably, I think, Loaded over like an 18-month period. And I remember, and he told the same story. It was, you know, it was, but he was so open about stuff with um, the bomb threats and everything else. And he was manager, Celtic manager at the time, but he just it was just me and him, and he was just very chatty and he was happy to do it. And you know, there was a lot of humor in those pieces and things. And um, I don't think a Celtic manager would do an interview like that now. And that was only 18 years ago, 19 years ago. I remember, um, I remember I went the first time and chatted away. And second time, he was like, Oh, yeah, you're okay. And then I went the third time, he went, For fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, and he said, do you get paid every time? And I went, yeah. And he went, all right, come on then. And just kind of went through the same anecdotes for me. But he, um, I, but, you know, I, and I think that a lot of uh, a lot of the time it was similar around then. And then I occasionally got a job where I'd be interviewing, say, someone at Man, say Darren Fletcher when he was coming through at Man United, or um, I, another Scottish player that was at a Premiership club, and you just felt that difference. You know, the press officer sitting in the interview with you, mm-hmm. and their quotes just were so banal and generic, and you know they'd all start start to be media coached. And, and now when you you see interviews with Premiership players, they're just it's completely pointless. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember ever seeing an interview in the last five years with a player that I thought it was interesting or mm. funny or surprising or something with a bit of a voice to it. They just kind of, and I can't really blame them really, because no. why would they, why would they take a chance of causing controversy in the, in the kind of culture we live in with social media and the financial position they're in? What's the point? I mean, you know, why, why would you give a kind of controversial interview or see anything that was remotely interesting to be honest? Mm, no, absolutely. Yeah, well, it's interesting Mike Summerby's talking about sort of failing to score. You know, uh, I've, I've still got confidence. I'm facing up to the fact I've got to play myself into scoring form again. You know, you don't, you, I mean, he's looking at his weaknesses. Uh, yeah. Do you know yeah. That's the kind of thing that a modern player would be 
Oh, oh yeah, exactly. Like that, I think that humility comes through with all these players. They're very, they'll very happily say, "I'm not playing well. Here's what I'm doing wrong. Here's what we as a team aren't doing." And and they're almost a bit funny about taking praise. You know, it's much more of that sort of old British stiff upper lip approach, really. And it does, yeah, it feels very, very different. Yeah, we're going to jump out of the magazine just for a, for a wee minute. So you'll probably be aware of, like, say, the focus on sections used to get and shoot whether it be a famous footballer would get asked a bunch of questions. So we're going to turn the tables on yourself here and just throw yeah. some questions at you. Okay. So full name? Neil Johnston Forsyth. Birthplace? Dundee. What was your first car? Uh, what was my first car? An Audi, a, a pretty old Audi. That I, uh, When my wife visited me for the first time, I picked her up at, um, in, I was living in Edinburgh at the time at the airport and drove back and... It was this huge car park, the flats I was living in, and I very casually reversed into the one other car in the car park. So <laughs> I think that was the that was the end of that Audi. Yeah. Well, who's your favourite player? Um, of all time. All time. Yeah. Probably the best United player I saw, and I caught the latter half, latter period of his career was Dave Neary. Um, I was yeah privileged to still see Neary playing. I think I don't. It's just the comfort on the ball. You know, it just doesn't get better. Really. Yeah. So the, the next one's a given, but who's your favourite team? Dundee United. Okay. What's your most memorable match? Probably the 94 Cup final that we beat Rangers in um, 1-0 with Cree Brewster scoring. That was, it was so, I, I, that was, I was at an age where I went to every game home and away and I was so invested in the team. I, I sold, I wrote for a fanzine, I sold programmes and it was my whole life really United at that point. I was there with my big brother Alan, who'd first taken me to the games, all our kind of mates from Brighty Ferry. And it was 16, so I just started drinking alcohol. So these things always help. But it was, <laughs> but also, but we just didn't, there was no way we expected to win that game. You know, that Rangers team was outstanding. They were going for a double treble. Mm-hmm. And we just, and, the, and we'd obviously lost all those finals before. But there's just something about that day. and Ivan Golac and everything else, and I was—I just remember so much of that day. It was—it was a beautiful sunny day at Hamden. Mm. We're behind the goal, and it was, uh, yeah. I just that—that that really stands out. I'd say that—that that one and, and Barcelona beating Barcelona at home as well, because that was—I was even younger than that, and I was with my granddad and my dad and my uncles and my cousins and everything. And that was—it was one of my first United games. I was watching us beat Barcelona. Mm. <laughs> so, I kind of thought that's how it was going to go, but uh, did you remember much about that game? Don't remember much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember the goal. I remember Gallagher um, cross come shot, and um, uh, I remember the, the sheds just exploding, and, and just the number of people. I was I was only nine, so it made a huge impact on me. It was just growing up in Dundee as well. I probably not, you know, I've seen that many people twenty seven, twenty eight thousand. My granddad got this whole row of seats for us in the stand, and loads of extended family my uncle came up from England he'd been a massive United fan grew up in Dundee and uh, I, I remember I remember the Barcelona players walking off at the end and I remember it was Mark Hughes and Lunicher and Venables and you know I, 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 I've got quite a clear kind of picture of it under the lights at Tanadice it was mm. really kind of a proper Roy the Rover sort of match that one excellent so this one, it could be the same answer, but this one, what's your biggest thrill? What's been your biggest thrill? It doesn't have to be football related. Uh, well, football-wise, I'd say the one that was like just the biggest kind of emotional journey 
was the playoff win against Partick Thistle to get us back up, um, which would have been nine, so 96, 97, I think, pretty sure it was. Um, and we were, we, it was a two-legged playoff. And we, we drew at Partick, one all, Christian Daly scored, and then they went one up at Tannadice. And it was a midweek game, I think on a Thursday. And I, again, I had a season ticket then, and when we were in the first division, we went to all the ground, first division grounds. And uh, it was injury time, and Andy McLaren got the ball out wide right, and he had a full back in behind him. And I think any other player would have gone back to the full back. And McLaren was just this gallus, brilliant old school winger, turned the full back, got to the um, touchline, put a little cross into the front post. And Brian Welsh, who was centre half, was I just stayed up and got a, a little header in when he was about a foot and a half off the ground. And um, that was injury time equaliser. But I've never felt an emotion like that a game. And it wasn't really pure joy, it was more the um, negation of the absolute panic that we were all in. It was more about going from somewhere incredibly low back to even, <laughs> going from even up yeah, yeah. upwards. Because yeah. it was just the uh, just the panic in the ground. Like, oh, because I don't know if we'd have survived financially. We'd, we'd spent loads of money that year. We bought uh, Presley and Sandy Robertson for something like 750 grand. It just seems incredible now, but um, or maybe more, maybe it was near a million, but Anyway, that was probably the game that was the biggest emotional journey. So we had that. We had Gordon Smart on the podcast, oh, okay. uh, and his biggest thrill was slightly different to yours, but it involved you. All right. Uh, it was you'd hired a pub in London for Scotland Brazil game. <laughs> yeah. So he went through a bit of that. So I'm sure he'll be happy that your biggest thrill wasn't the same as his. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a lovely man, Gordon, but he's he does not represent my biggest thrill in football. <laughs> We've had some good times off the park, right enough. Mm-hmm. Okay, so on the other flip side, what's been your biggest disappointment? Um, probably, um, I'd say, well, relegation the year before was was pretty pretty devastating. Um, losing, oh, what was the final? I mean, we lost so many finals, but probably the Motherwell. 91 final, the family final with Jim and Tommy and the dad had died the week before and everyone else. But I was at that game and going to Hamden was such a sort of scary. I, I always find going through from Dundee at the West Coast so intimidating. And I think it was the first time I'd been at Hamden. Uh, oh no, I'd been for a Scotland-Argentina friendly, which I think predated that. But anyway, the 91 final and we, we are such a good team and... It was a sort of it was sort of McLean's third team he built probably when a lot of these young lads were coming through. Um, Darren Jackson, Duncan Ferguson might have come on and sub that game, and but yeah, you know we had, we still had a, a really brilliant team and we should have won it. I mean Motherwell had Davy Cooper, like Stevie Kirk probably took Yarnut and a few you know, but we we were a better team and we defended really badly, came back into it and then we slightly got overawed I think a little bit, but I just wanted obviously wanted. To win the cup so much, but just for McLean, mm-hmm. uh, it felt it felt particularly devastating. I think because I think you knew that was that was probably it for him and the and the Scottish Cup. Okay. So what's the best country you visited? Uh, well, I met my wife in New York, so I should probably say that. But I also lived I lived in New York for quite a while, and it was uh, I, I absolutely loved that. Such an exciting place to live and. 
um, yeah, I used to watch. We used to, it was fun watching United games there actually because they were on such obscure times, but <laughs> we managed to gather together a, a little group of us. There's a pub in the Upper West Side that shows all the Celtic games uh, live, and then there's a Rangers pub, and I think was it the Bronx. And you can so you can try and get old firm games, and then a few others, and played football for an expats team and things. So that that was probably my favourite okay. place to live. So, what's your favourite food? Um, I probably have to say fish and chips. Right. That's a childhood thing that I've not managed to shake off. <laughs> That's a great joy, yeah. Miscellaneous likes, so give me two things you, you like to do. Walk my dog, greatly enjoy. Uh, walking around the hills where I live. My dog's called Ivan Golak, it's his full name. It's on his, uh, his, his pet passport. <laughs> oh, Doesn't use his surname much, but it usually goes by <laughs> Ivan. Unless you're telling them off, he gets both names. Yes, exactly. <laughs> when I'm staring. Um, and that, and playing football, I'm still kind of, uh, well, not not right now, obviously, but still uh, still playing football amateur-wise and uh, I, yeah, trying to keep that going as long as possible. Okay. So give me a couple of things you dislike, a couple of things that drive you up the wall. Oh, what drives me up the wall? Let me think. Um, probably the current world in, in terms of social media I'm finding I don't know if people are going mad in lockdown or what it is, but it's the it seems to be incessant outrage about whatever's happening that day. I find it very hard to even even I'm never I would never involve myself or even spectate on. I just don't know what's going on with people in lockdown. It's it's kind of um, becoming a very angry world. I think we live in, and uh, hopefully I can understand it. It's a lot of hardship going on, but hopefully the general vibe chills out a bit over the next few months. Yeah. Um, and other than that, well, it's very hard during lockdown not to have dislikes that are lockdown connected. And I think I'm finding it mm. that I really miss, oh, it's just little things I'm missing a lot, like just going to the pub for a pint and not being served by someone who looks like they're about to get in a spaceship and, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. things like that, going out for something to eat and it just things not being weird. So I think at this stage, it's very hard for dislike not to be Corona related. Okay. What's your favourite TV show of all time? Probably The Sopranos. Okay. What's your favourite singers? Give me two singers. Bob Dylan and who else? I'd say Mick Jagger and Rolling Stones. Okay. Who's your favourite actors? I can only give you two as well. Actors. Uh, Bill Nighy I absolutely love. I really, I just feel I could watch him in uh, in most things. And I'd probably say the same I mean, a personal collection, but I, I, love, I just love watching Brian Cox. I find him, I, I just, I, obviously on a personal level, but I just think he's a magnificent actor and I'm so glad about the success he's had with Succession over the last couple of years. I think it's given him a level of recognition he should have had a long time ago, really. Was he your, your, your dream pick for Bob's servant? He was, and I, I actually got him. Uh, from living in New York, going to watch the Dundee United game. I went to watch Dundee United play Rangers in the Scottish Cup. Uh, we were playing at Tannadice. It was a game we beat Rangers. Um, Davy Robertson scored a goal off his arse when I think Alan McGregor tried to clear it off. <laughs> anyway, I went to watch that game in a Rangers pub in New York. And it, I think it was a midweek game, so it would have been too prohibitive a kickoff time. And there was me, there was one other Dundee United fan in the, in the pub. And... Um, so I was chat. So yeah, I was chatting to him, and I knew him. It was one of the Sterling family that I know from up near our both, and we had mutual friends. Alan Patello works for the Scotsman, and 
Anyway, he'd read the book. He'd, the books had come out, but nothing else at that point. But I'd just been approached by BBC Scotland to adapt the character, which was at first going to be a Radio Scotland series. And he said, well, who who in an ideal world would you want to play Bob Servan? And I said, well, we wouldn't get him, but Brian Cox, you know, obviously. And he said, well, I, I know Brian. And we'd had a few pints, so I kind of called his bluff a little bit on set of the book, I think maybe a day or two later. And we didn't hear anything. And I just thought, well, that's, you know, that, that was what that was in there. But two months later, I got an email from the Owen Bell, who's the producer at BBC Scotland. And he said, I've just had an email from Brian Cox's agent to say he'll do it. What are the dates? <laughs> so he came and did it in Glasgow. This was, it was just a lunchtime radio series when it started on Radio Scotland. And he, he turned up and he was very kind, but he clearly didn't really know what he was doing there. And he read, hadn't read the scripts or anything, but he... He did it and he was brilliant. And and he told me later over dinner one night that what had happened was he got the book in his apartment in Brooklyn and it had been on the top of a pile of scripts and books and everything else. And his son had gone to the toilet and had taken someone to read and he'd chosen the Bob Seven book. <laughs> and Brian heard this laughing coming from the toilet. <laughs> and he came out and he said, what the fuck's going on in there? And his son went, oh, did you... What's this? What's this book? And I said, and Brian said, "Oh, I've been asked to do it." Anyway, you got to do it. I mean, that was it. It was, yeah. it was his son Alan's choice of reading matter in the toilet that got him on board. So there you go. It was a particularly Dundonian turn of events. Really. <laughs> Great. Uh, so, who's your best friend? Best friend uh, would be Dominic Lachocha, who's a pal of mine from Dundee High, who lives in America now. Okay. Who's the, who's been the biggest influence on you? Um. I think probably I'm at an age now I realise it was probably my, my parents you know I think you know when you're young you, you it's the last thing you'd admit to mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you'd probably do everything you could in your power to deny it but no I think I probably got lots of great stuff from my, from my mum and dad and Brody Ferry Nice one uh, Final question here which person in the world would you most like to meet? The most like to meet um, that would probably be um, well, I was going to say Bob Dylan, but it would just be an incredibly awkward, undoubtedly humiliating conversation for me. So, uh, who else? Um, just I, Ivan Golak. Let's go for Ivan Golak. Okay. Bring the two Ivans together. That'd be lovely. Brilliant. Yeah. He's, he's on Twitter, so let, let's get that one going. Is he? Yeah. I, is he? I'm never convinced by that account. No. Is that definitely him? I th yeah, I think it's him. I think it's him. All right. Yeah. You any questions, Tom? Well, I, I just a be question about your writing, uh, Neil. Um, cause a few of your TV projects, like um, Eric Ernie and me, and uh, Waiting for Andre and Mick and Margaret, the Urban Miss, are obviously centred around true life people and true life incidents. And I, I just sort of wondered if you got a, and you're always keeping an, an eye out for a sort of quirky true life story to, to adapt. And what's your sort of research process or something like that? I, I kind of, I, I was. For a long time, I'm I'm trying not to, not to do that now really because they kind of lend themselves to one-offs really, right. two stories, and I'm really trying to do. I want to just try and keep doing series if I can get them made because it's just so nice spending a long time with characters and hopefully then getting to do it again. We're, yeah. So, but I, I'm really proud of the ones we did. Um, and the research, well, I, you know, I think that came from starting off as a journalist, really, and right. especially a freelance journalist, where I was having to kind of find little nuggets of things and package it up and sell it to magazines or newspapers and say, here's why you should commission me to write this story. And so I think I got quite good at 
seeing the dramatic story within a true story, if you like. Right. Um, the research is great fun because I think the research, when you're, when you're scripting a true story, the research is, is giving you the story. I mean, it's great. Yeah. You're not having to make it up. You, if you can look at something with a dramatist eye, then you'll read an autobiography and think, well, here's the, here's the real hidden story within here. So it's, um, oh, they were great fun to do. Eric Ernie and me in particular, I really felt like I was sort of being given the privileged position of handling a piece of British television history, really. Yeah. I was going to ask you more about that, but then I listened to the Sitcom Geeks podcast and you tell the story oh, right. there. So if anybody's interested in how you wrote that, go and download the Sitcom Geeks podcast that you're on. The other question I would, I would ask you is, if you were a professional footballer, what would your ideal career trajectory have been? Oh, right. Probably brought United schoolboys, which I was. Uh, United maybe get poached from them by Fairmuir Boys Club, who were the kind of Rolls Royce <laughs> youth operation. They were so good Fairmuir, that I once went to watch my brother Alan play against them, and for Fairmuir, Stevie Glass was on the bench. <laughs> that was kind of how good they were in that generation. But um, yes, now poached by them just to get a bit of uh, youth football kudos. United S forms, United for well, do a decade there, get a testimonial, <laughs> and then with great dignity. Maybe go to Man United for a few years <laughs> with, with only best wishes from the United fans and then go back to United in a sort of player-manager, local hero. Craig, Booster, Craig Booster, if it had gone, gone right sort of a set-up, that, that would probably be right. United under McLean and then maybe go back for a laugh and then Man United in the, the tail end of Fergie and then back, back, to, back to United. That'd be great. You'd have had a rough time of it with managers to be both McLean and Ferguson. <laughs> I think I maybe maybe there's something in me that likes the punishment. <laughs> Excellent. So we'll jump back into the magazine here, if that's okay. We've gone on page fourteen. So on the bottom left hand here, there is an article, and it says Henry makes fans forget a fifty thousand pound star. And it says, you'd expect most fans to be angry when a relegation-threatened club transferred one of its top forwards for £50,000. But that's not what happened when St Johnston let Alex McDonald go to Rangers. For a few days earlier, St Johnston boss Gibby Ormond handed over £15,000 to Stirling Albion for Henry Hall. His brilliant displays are making the Perth club's fans forget all about McDonald. He's been the star in recent wins and should be part of ensuring that the Saints have no fear of relegation. Hall was also proven he can score goals too, and Ormond is delighted with the double transfer deal that netted him a handsome £35,000 profit. He also fancies ex-Celtic wing half Sam Henderson, also at Stirling Albion. So I just mentioned there, the article refers to Gibby Ormond rather than Willie Ormond. Now, Gibby's the younger brother of Willie, and he'd played for Airdrie and actually Dundee United, Cowdenbeath and Alloa. Now, Willie was a manager at St Johnson between 67 and 73 and it's possible that Gibby was involved with Saints at this time as a scout which I've had confirmed from some St Johnson fans as well but he was definitely not the manager and he may have been involved in transfer dealings so I just find it strange that Willie Ormond is the man who people would know at this point his brother Gibby isn't so why does he even get mentioned in this article when it's it's definitely not him it's involved in the 
in the transfer. I just find that really strange. But just as a wee spoiler, St Johnson would finish comfortably in sixth position on 37 points, and that was back when it was still two for a win. So just a quick profile on Henry Hall, and he was born in Bothkenna in Stirlingshire, I hope I've pronounced that correct, in April 1945. Stirling Albion between 65 and 68, St Johnson between 68 and 75, moved to Dundee United between 75 and 77, played 35 league games there, scoring eight goals and finished his career at Forfar. He also managed at Forfar and Montrose a bit later on. And he's one of these one of these players who, I say famously, but whenever I post pictures or articles on him on Twitter, there's always one or two people who say, that's my PE teacher, that's my ex-teacher. So he, was, he taught physical education at Larbert High School and Falkirk High School in the early 70s and Kirkton High School in the late 1970s, and at Rockwell High School in Dundee in the 1980s as well. It turns out there does seem to be quite a few of these players from that sort of period who, at some point, you know, probably after their career, became a PE teacher, and Henry Hall was no different. Do you do you have any sort of memories of Henry being with Dundee United? No, I remember his name, though, but I think that, yeah, that, there's two there's two career paths that are kind of, I noticed in this magazine, the players which was publican or PE teacher um, and I think they were quite common. Uh, Kenny Cameron who's in the United photo later I'm sure he ended up um, involved with kind of uh, physical education locally in Dundee possibly the Northern College from memory and he was involved with the teams as well like coaching the younger players but um, no I Henry, Henry Hall's I've got a feeling that he his, his grandson might have been at um, Dundee High when I was there but um Fortunately, I'm a bit younger than that. <laughs> he's fa- famous. He's famously known for his comb overs as well. So he's one of the the him and Drew Jarvie were probably the two most famous Scots for their comb overs. Uh, so we're on to page sixteen. So we're going to cross and just down the bottom right. It's Jerry Kerr says no. So recent reports from Sweden suggested that Dundee United manager Jerry Kerr was set to plunge into the continental transfer market once again following his swoop in the Scandinavian countries three years ago. But he claims his shopping days in the lands of the Vikings are over. And he says, I am no longer interested in foreign players. I would imagine this story started simply because my name is well known in Sweden. Earlier in 1966, he brought five top Scandinavians to Scotland. Oyen Persson, who's now with Rangers, Danes Finn Dossing and Monsberg, followed by Swede Lennart wing and Norwegian Finn Seaman. We'll take a quick look at Jerry. He was born in Armadale in June 1912 and he passed in November 1999, age 87. His, his playing career started at Alloa, St Bernard's. Uh, I don't know if that was a youth team or something in the Dundee area. He played for Dundee United between 39 and 47 and Rangers and Berwick Rangers as well I have here. Um, he managed People Rovers, Berwick Rangers, Alloa. He managed Dundee United between 59 and 71. That's a that's a pretty good innings there. Dallas Tornado, that was a team that we spoke about, the, the, the strip came from, uh, 67. And he finished at 4 far as well. He's credited with taking the club from the third bottom of the Scottish League to being an established side in the Scottish tier. And he became the first manager of a British club to win a competitive game in Spain when United won home and away against Barcelona in the 1966-67 Intercities Fair Cup. 
So that's a nice wee, a nice wee thing to to be proud of. When he came in, he insisted the club become full time and that a proper reserve side be created. So I think I think a lot of what he did sort of paved the way for Jim McLean for what was there. You know, in terms, you know, it's crazy to think now there weren't proper reserve sides already in place for a club. You know, on the up at that point, uh, he became general manager in '71 after Jim McLean came over, came to take over, and. I assume this is still the case. The South Stand was named in his honour. Is that still the case? Yeah. Yeah. Hal Stewart. So I think Hal Stewart with Morton. So he's often credited as the man who started this Viking invasion. So he brought players in such as Eric Sorensen and Kai Johansson. But Jerry Kerr is staking a claim to this here as well. They, they kind of I, that was before my time, but certainly Jerry Kerr. I think there was a real awareness that he he done a lot of the the work that McLean then benefited from. And obviously McLean then elevated it massively again. But even this, this, this magazine, which is 69, mm. when you get to, when we get to the league tables, I think United are fourth, and I think they finished fifth that year in the first division. So, you know, they had, and they beat Barcelona for the first time a few years before in the, um, the, the Inter, what was it, the Inter? The Inter-Cities Fair Cup. Inter-Cities, yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, the, 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 real, the real elevation of United was the Jerry Kerr period from where from the real lows of where we'd historically been. But then obviously McLean then took us on, on a level again. So mm-hmm. I think I think you'd kind of look at the Kerr McLean era as a one for me in terms of the kind of the glory days, I suppose, of United. And in terms of the, the Scandinavians, that, that was before my time with it, but then we did it again. Tommy McLean in the 90s did a very similar thing when we had Shell Olofsson I think it was Tony McLean. It might have been Sturrock, but Shell Olsen, Eric Pedersen, Lars Zetterland, and that, that a lot of people drew parallels between those two kind of groups of signings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so ac- across the page, we have page 17, and it's Darby have two supermax. So there's a photograph of Roy McFarland on there. But the article says, talk of bargain buys in football and be certain that Darby's £5,000 to Spurs for indestructible Dave Mackay will head the Got Him for Peanuts parade. But what about the other Supermark in the Derby side, centre-half Roy McFarland? He cost £24,000 from Tranmere and has gained an t- under-23 cap for England and is only 19. Goal have worked out the mathematics of the deal, suggesting that he has at least another 12 years in him, making it under £2,000 a year that the outlay will cost. They've suggested that Mackay has about another three years at most, making it 1250 a year which I think is a bit of a simplistic way of looking at things, but there we go. Derby boss Brian Clough rates him in the £150,000 bracket, and assistant Peter Taylor explains, class players are just not available for sale. The clubs that have them are holding on to them. Some clubs who think they can buy their way out of trouble are going to find out too late that the squeeze is on in football. McFarlane pays tribute to the effect that Mackay has had in his game, and he says, you don't need to look for him. You sense he's there and you get confident and flick the ball to him or nod it down. There's no panic with Dave around. I mean, I, I love that sort of comment as well. Just, you know, the, the effect that just playing around Dave Mackay has on, on his career. And, you know, it's, it's obvious obvious that he's it's making them just calm down and take that extra little bit of time with the ball and with the pass and rather than just nodding it away, actually, you know, playing it to him. Okay, so Dave Mackay, we can have a wee quick look through 
his career as well. So he was born in Edinburgh in November 1934, sadly passed March 2015. He started at Hearts 1953-59, moved to Spurs, Derby County, Swindon Town. He has 22 Scottish caps, scoring four goals. He's also got quite a few teams that he's managed as well, including Swindon, Nottingham Forest, Derby County, Walsall, then Al Arabi Kuwait, Al Shabab, Al Arabi Kuwait again, Doncaster Rovers, Birmingham City, Zamalek and Qatar. So once again, somebody who's moved about quite a bit as well. He's got loads of loads of honours. Won the Scottish League Division One with Hearts, fifty-seven to fifty-eight. Scottish Cup, fifty-five to fifty-six. Scottish League Cup two times as well. He won won the league and the cup both sides of the border. It's a handful of guys to have done that. Yeah. I mean, we could we could spend an entire podcast on Dave McKay alone, but um, yeah, he's certainly had an influence on Roy McFarlane there. So on to page eighteen, and now Allen is in line for Spanish job. So Ronnie Allen, the former Wolves manager, could take over as boss of Atletico Bilbao. He flew out to Spain last weekend to discuss terms. The seven and a half thousand pound a year job has not been filled since Tommy Doherty turned it down to take over at Aston Villa. Bilbao president Felix Krah and his co-directors were waiting to meet Alan to discuss a, a reputed £5,000 a year offer. I, I, I'm a bit confused about that because the article's saying that Tommy Doherty turned down £7,500, but he's been offered £5,000, I think. Well, you know, why, would, why would you do that? So as a spoiler, Ronnie Allen would go on to sign for Bilbao and manage them until 1971 before moving to Sporting Lisbon for a year. He led Bilbao to second in the league in his first season in charge, but then managed Walsall, West Brom, Saudi Arabia, Panathinaikos, and then back at West Brom as well. So he did okay there, I think. So they, they, I was just going to say on page 18, I thought it was interesting that story about Sir Ralph watches Robson again. Sir Ralph Ramsey went to watch Pop Robson. Mm-hmm. Brian, Brian Pop Robson at Newcastle was banging in the goals. He went to see him again, and it feels like it's a fair comp. He's going to get caps there, and he never got a cap. It's, it's interesting. He never got capped by England, uh, Pop Robson. Um, so it just shows you these little twists of fate, isn't it? And just and the number of brilliant players of that generation that just didn't get a solitary cap. And then you look at the players that have been capped for the home nations over the last 10, 15 years. It's just astonishing. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we're on to, we're going to go to pages 24 and 25, the the bit basically we've been working up to here. It's the centre page, double spread of Dundee United team in colour. So it looks as though it's been taken in a gymnasium, this photograph, as you can see the monkey bars in the background. And there's these ubiquitous gym benches that they're sitting on as well, um, which I remember from, I mean, I remember the monkey bars and I remember these benches from my, my school in the gyms. Um, now, as I mentioned earlier on, actually, in certain lights, and it's been questioned, some people think that's a dark blue, but I can assure people that it's black. I don't think in their history, uh, Dundee United would have had a, a blue strip, would they have? I'd be very surprised, surprised <laughs> and horrified yeah. if that was the truth. So the kit itself is it's quite simple, but it's classic. Black shirts and shorts with the large white cuffs and a white round collar. And there's a relatively large badge in the shape of a shield with the initials DUFC on it. I think that that was repeated. Was that not a relatively recent badge again? 
or am I thinking of something? I'm, I th was that not on a, a relative? Well, they use it a lot on uh, various sort of uh, clothing in the, in the in the store and stuff. I'm not sure if they put it. I can't remember if they put it back on the mm. on the strip or not. But I, it's probably my favourite badge. It's a sort of classic. We had we moved to the lion sort of rampart after that, um, which I think is fairly used by probably half a dozen Scottish clubs. But yeah, no, I like that strip. Yeah, now the 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 bottoms of the socks look to be white. Now, at first I thought it was something. It was the, the the tongue on the the boots, but I think you know sometimes you get coloured socks that are coloured until it gets to the actual foot part of it. So I think I think looking at them, it does look as though the actual bottom part of the sock is white, and it's just pulled up a bit because you can see some of them, like say the the second front row, second from the right, you can see his tongue up over them. And so it looks as though that's a, the white bit's actually the the sock, so and yeah, they just pulled it up. You're probably right, yeah. actually. And obviously, some of them look as though they've they've got two stripes around the top, and some look as though they've got one. But I'm assuming that's just how they've worn them. In fact, the the same guy we're talking about, he's got one that's shown one and one that's shown none. So it's all <laughs> over the place there. Um, goalkeeper tops as well, um, just plain red, classic plain red. Good look for me. I like that. So Donald Mackay and Hamish McAlpine are the two the two keepers there. And it's not very often you see a, a moustacheless Hamish McAlpine, yeah, is it? Yeah. The lesser spotted yeah. moustacheless McAlpine. He's uh, it's amazing his um his career. At the time at United he was the, the the longevity of it. But yeah, he looks very young there. Yeah. And he's got a bit of a bowl cut as well, going by that. The the haircut looks a bit a bit of a bowl cut. Six hundred and eighty eight yeah. appearances. And I love this. I love this. Three goals. I just love that. You know, it's like in, in any when when you're looking at the stats of any players and you get to a goalkeeper and they've got something in the goals for column, you think, yeah, that's my sort of goalkeeper. I like that. And it was a penalty. It was the penalty taker for a couple mm. of years. Yeah, I'm surprised actually it wasn't more than three. Maybe this is just league games. Remember he missed one. At, remember seeing some video when he missed one at Ibrox and <laughs> legging it back. Yeah. yeah. But he was he was just playing amateur football in Dundee and he played for a few years, I think the sort of Dundee juniors and I'm pretty sure when he was at United they immediately loaned him out to a junior club and worked his way up, got in the got in the team and, and stayed there. And he was often falling out with McLean and stuff and over the years. But yeah, he just yeah, what what a what a kind of um what a spell. But we had a few, you know, him same with Malpa, same with Neri. We had these a few players in that team that just somehow managed to stick it out with me gym for 15 odd years yeah i mean just even looking at some of the so top left jimmy briggs played 401 appearances tommy miller 282 appearances dennis gillespie 455 donald mckay 243 hamish McAlpine, as you said 688 doug smith 628 andy roland 440 so there's just even in this there's a lot of a lot of appearances throughout them all as well got um ian mitchell which is 314 i think it says jim mitchell and it does it says jim mitchell in the, the team photo but it's ian mitchell well it's remarkable you this between those two goalkeepers you've got what like over 800 appearances mm. for the club yeah so, i know i think they must have been slightly slightly blended into each other the two yeah. careers but um i know the staying power of these of these boys is a uh, it's amazing, really. Yeah, would it have been Billy Thompson that took over for McAlpine? 
Yes, probably it would have been because Thompson was coming through in that sort of uh, like the Barcelona games. Yeah, the sort of um, late eighties would have been yeah slow slow. Uh, McCarpin was sort of he was reserved for a while, and then eventually he went. I think he went to Wraith Rovers for a yeah. year or two at the end of his career. But yeah, Billy Thompson would have been the, the next one up, and he was there for a, for a good while. Would you say that Hamish McAlpine's the 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 best United goalkeeper you've seen? I I really liked um, Alan Main. Mm-hmm. I, I thought Alan Main was fantastic when we when we, when we first got him. Um, he he was just some of the saves that he pull off. And again, that's when I was starting to go a lot as a teenager. So it sort of made a big impact. Um, and we've had some um, we've had a couple of good uh, good keepers in the last kind of. 10 years, a couple of the Polish guys we had and things, but Hamish Carpin was just such, he was such a character and he would kind of conduct the shed with the singing and everything. And But Main, Main used to do the same. He was, he, he was, he used to love it when we were, when he was down the shed end, he'd be up, up to all sorts. But um, Yeah. I remember Alan Main, I always remember him as being a really flexible goalkeeper and just, you know, one of these, he could react really well and, you know, he could, he, that that was probably for me. I thought that was his strength was his reactionary saves. But I just yeah. for some some reason I just remember him being very bendy. So yeah, I he was brilliant. He was great, great reflex saves. But he had an, an amazing kick on him as well. I remember if it was windy that he'd be properly hammering it down, landing in the penalty area with someone like Darren Jackson sort of running onto it. It was um, it was great. Now he was a, he was a brilliant goalie, Alan. Yeah. So we're moving on to page twenty six. And this is, it said, I'd run all day if they asked me, non-stop. That's Charlton's ace, Alan Campbell. So there's a photograph of Alan here. And this article is a photo form in action for Charlton. And it says, Charlton's Alan Campbell is all set for a place in Bobby Brown's Scottish World Cup squad. Meet one of the few footballers in the country who loves running. Alan Campbell of Charlton. Ask most players what they think of training and the expression on their faces is enough. They hate it. But 21-year-old Campbell called, I'm going to go with the pronunciation, Mingus here. So he's called Mingus by his Charlton colleagues after the famous sprinter, Mingus Campbell. And he says, I'd run all day if they asked me to. I used to do it a lot when I was at school. I really loved it. Most players don't like doggies, but I must say I do, even though they are hard work. So just to be note, and obviously this is the Mingus Campbell who was uh, the became the, the MP. But he was born in Glasgow in 1941 and he held the British record for the 100 metre sprint from 1967 to 1974, having run the distance in 10.2 seconds. He also captained the Great Britain athletics team in 65-66 and he was Member of Parliament for North East Fife from 87 to 2015 and was the leader of the Liberal Democrats from 2nd of March 2006 until the 15th of October 2007. So that's why I went with the, the the print. I mean, growing up for me, that was always Menzies, like as in John Menzies, but I've never heard them called Menzies Campbell. So I'm I'm guessing they probably pronounced it the Mingus way. So Scott's boss Bobby Brown says about Campbell, he has played well the times I've seen him, but it must be remembered there is a lot of competition. Campbell says about Charlton, I'm convinced we will go up in the next two years. I'm quite happy at Charlton, which is hardly a resounding statement. The, the team spirit is terrific and we are playing well. On himself, Campbell says, I'm a bad marker, really, and I'm not the greatest tackler. My left foot is a bit of a liability as well. He's not really bigging himself up here at all, is he? When he first came to Charlton as a 16-year-old from a broth, he was used as a striker. 
He says, I prefer it in midfield. You take so much stick up front. In my first year there, the the crowd used to give us some stick, but now they're wonderful. So just on that, I mean, again, we're, we're back to this theme of just the honesty and the, the self-deprecation and, you know, the fact he's saying, I'm a really bad marker, I'm not a great tackler, my left foot's rubbish. Um, I'm, a, I'm a bit, basically, I'm a bit rubbish, I'm a bit shit, you know, so, yeah. Alan Campbell, so full name Alan James Campbell, born in a broth in January 48. As we said, Charlton Athletic, he moved to Birmingham in 1970, then to Cardiff City, Carlisle United, and then a couple of non-league teams as well, and a couple of non-league teams he managed as well. He is one under-23 cap, and unfortunately he didn't make any Scottish full caps, so he never did get that cap from there. So across the page we have Willie Johnson, Rangers in Scotland, so it's a black and white photograph, and let's just say that I think any one of the three of us could probably have scored that goal, considering you know where it is. It's it, it looks as if it's an open goal. It's it's half a yard from the line. Um, the pitch. I mean, look at the state of the pitch as well. It's absolutely. Um, it's all torn up, and I, I'm pretty sure that's against Hearts in the background there. I think it's um, Arthur Thompson and Eddie Eddie Thompson as well. Moving on to on the ball. So this is lots of little. Just little stories, we, um, and it's Bernard Bale lets goal readers know what's happening inside soccer. So I think I'm just going to pick out a, a few from this as well. And the first one is Scott's Think Again, and it's Tommy McLean as a Scott who refused a move to Chelsea because he didn't want to leave Scotland. Now he has changed his mind and would not shake his head at the chance. Spurs are among the London clubs interested in signing him and the fee of £70,000 would go a long way to easing Kilmarnock's financial problems. The club lost £38,000 in their last financial year and must act now to avoid getting into deeper trouble. So for the record, Tommy stayed at Kelly for another two years before they moved on to Rangers for £65,000. So he didn't get his move down south. Another article, and it's Jim Ede could be another Scot in the move south of the border. If Shrewsbury town manager Harry Gregg has his way. Harry, who's working overtime to steer Shrewsbury clear of the third division relegation zone, has been touring Scotland looking for talent. Edie is one of two players he particularly wants. The other is Ricky Moyer of Cumnock. Both goalkeepers Edie of Rob Roy and inside left Moyer used to play for Rangers. Their experience as well as their ability could be the deciding factor in Shrewsbury's future. Now, Jim Eadie did move south in 1969, but it was to Cardiff City rather than Shrewsbury Town. He would play 43 league games before moving on to Bristol City in 73, where he then played over 200 games over a four-year spell. He was uh, he was in goal when uh, Cardiff City beat Real Madrid in the European Cup Winners' Cup by one nothing in the first leg. Yeah, I think they got hammered in the second leg. But yeah, <laughs> so he was apparently nicknamed the Flying Pig by the Bristol fans, which never suggests that he's quite athletic, does it? That suggests that there's maybe a wee bit of rotundness to him. Ricky Moyer, the other player, so he did move to Shrewsbury Town. He's only recently died this year, actually, just age in April, age seventy-four. He made one hundred and eighty appearances for Shrewsbury in all competitions between sixty-nine and seventy-four, in which time he scored thirty-four goals. The idea, Harry Gregg just having a wee tour of Scotland, looking at the, you know Cumnock and things like that, and it's absolutely. And what was the other one? Rob Roy was it? Yeah, Rob Roy. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, this is what you spoke about towards the beginning of the podcast. That not not even from the Scottish second division, but from the juniors. 
Absolutely incredible. Uh, and, and, and sort of um, having choices and being on the radar of managers and, and everything else, it just, uh, yeah, it's kind of feels so, it feels such a distant, distant time. But I think, you're, I think as you said earlier, Andy, I think it's definitely the more the stage that the talent in Scotland was far higher level is now and I feel that it's probably just slipped back a bit and the finances have changed and everything else mm. but it's, it's good to hear that both of them had a, a good career after that yeah so next one quick fire ref so Ray Wilson West Brom's young Scottish left back seems to have set a completely different kind of record and one which few players will want to beat Wilson was booked after only one minute and 40 seconds of the match against Unfermline recently and thought at first he was being sent off but the German referee, Herr Fritz Helmut, was really only asserting his authority before the match got underway. Not only German referees follow this pattern, it is becoming more and more the thing for referees to clamp down early in the game. Now, when they say clamping, asserting his authority before the match got underway, I'm assuming they meant before it actually got into full flow, because one minute, 40 seconds in. Uh, but yet, the Herr Fritz Helmut, I had, I, had to, I had to do a double take on that just in case that wasn't a real name. <laughs> um, so this match actually took place on the 15th of January 1969 at East End Park and was a European Cup Winners' Cup tie and it ended in a 0-0 draw. And the second leg at the Hawthorns took place on the 19th of February and the Fairland won 1-0 with a Pat Gardner goal in the second minute. Dunfermline would then go on to the semi-finals of the Cup Winners' Cup that year where they would face Slovan Bratislava. The first leg ended 1-1 while Bratislava would win the second leg 1-0. Talking about the, the quality of the Scottish players, I mean, Scottish teams were getting into European competition and doing really well as well back then. So on to page 31, Bernard Bell says, so that this is on the right-hand side there, so Bernard has come up with a 10 stanza poem on the ongoing problem with hooligans in the game. Um, does anybody want to read this out? <laughs> it kind of made, made me want to become a hooligan. <laughs> yeah. It's perjured. <laughs> <laughs> Just looking Bernard Bale uh, up, it was a long Fleet Street career, but among the books he co-authored were uh, biographies of Dennis Law and the Chuckle Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> what a combo. Yeah. Together at last. <laughs> Yeah, you're not going to find them in the same section in the shop, are you? <laughs> so moving on to page 36. So I'm going to jump on a few here. Again, if you want to stop me at any of them, feel free. So page 36 is here and there. So again, this is a page that's got lots of little short articles. And one I'm going to pick out is famous Morton players. It says, Morton may not be exactly setting the heather and fire in the Scottish First Division, but they, they can't complain that they haven't got enough big names around. They already have a youngster called Stanley Matthews Rankins on the book, and now they've just signed Dave Mackay Hayes, a 15-year-old defender, as an apprentice professional. So Stan Rankin went on to play for Clyde, did he play for Clyde Bank, didn't he, Tom? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't know that his middle name was Stanley Matthews Rankin. Uh, the unluckiest football league debut. The unluckiest football league debut of all time is surely a Scottish centre-forward named Charles Joseph Ford whom Newcastle United bloodied 37 years ago in a first division game against Grimsby Town. The first match was his last. He sustained a double fracture of the left leg and never played again. Ah, oh, well. The one I liked in the, here and there was this 
Willie Johnson's Willie Johnson, thing, yeah. which is so clearly a lie. I mean, it's absolute nonsense. You, you think from anyone it sounds like nonsense, but from him with his social life at the time, he claims that he put himself out of the side because he injured his back playing football in a dream. Johnson explained he often dreams about playing and he, um, he was he took a mighty crack at the ball and wrenched his back muscles. I mean, complete gibberish. <laughs> Listen, it, it uses up space in the, the, the magazine, so I think that's that's all it needs to do. But yeah, no, absolutely. Fortunately, the club physio soon knocked him back into shape. Aye, I'll bet he did. I think the, the myriad ways in which Willie Johnson could put his back out in 1969 <laughs> yeah. um, in a bed... I don't think uh, dreaming about playing football would have been one of them. But mm. There's another West Brom's Scots. So West Brom's playing staff used to be more of an exclusively English affair, longer than that of any other club, but times change. This season they have five Scots, Doug Fraser, Bobby Hope, Asa Hartford, Ray Wilson and Dennis Martin. And they have seven more on their wages register. So again, Scots down south. I mean, I, I see it all the time with with team photos and stuff from the period and they just go through it. I mean, in fact, even later on in the 80s, I mean, probably one of the, the most amazing I saw was the Leicester City team photograph, probably 83, 84 maybe. Um, it's when Jock Wallace was in charge and I, I would say between 70 and 80% of the players, and we're talking about three three rows of players here, were all Scottish. It was absolutely incredible. I don't think they were quite the same sort of quality as a way back in, back in then. Asa Hartford was apparently scouted by Bobby Hope's dad. Uh, they were both at Claybank High School, and uh, Asa Hartford was playing for some chapel amateurs, which I think Bobby Hope had played for. And he's Bobby Hope's dad has been along to watch them, and they spotted Asa Hartford and told Bobby Hope about it, and West Brom snapped him up. It's crazy. It's amazing how things happen like that, isn't it? So on to page 38. So I'm going to have a quick look at this Torquay United team photo, because there's actually... Again, there's, there's a few Scots in here. So I'm going to pick out a few of the players. Back row, Alan Welsh. So he's a Scot from Edinburgh who started at Bonnie Rig Rose before moving south to Millwall. He also played for Torquay, Plymouth and Bournemouth. Andy Donnelly is in the centre row. Uh, it's a goalkeeper from Lanark who played with Clyde between 61 and 63 before moving south to Millwall. He had a spell at Weymouth before moving to Torquay as well. Uh, John Benson is in the centre row, first from the right. He was born in a broth, but moved to Manchester at an early age and played for Man City between 61 and 64. Uh, Dispel managing City in 1983 before managing Burnley, uh, 845 and Wigan, 99 to 2000. I mean, that's that's recent and it's not really a name I remember managing at Wigan or Burnley. Alan Brown, front row centre, the manager. He's from Kennaway in Fife and was an inside forward. He played with East Fife between 1944 and 1950 and actually won the Scottish League Cup with them in 1949. He would have been part of the, the club when they won the League Cup the season before, but he didn't play enough games to merit that in his honours. I don't know why it's not in his honours. Uh, he moved to Blackpool in 1950 before spells at Luton, Portsmouth and Wigan and his 14 caps with Scotland, scoring six goals. As well as managing Torquay, he managed Norton Forest between 73 and 75, amongst other clubs including Blackpool. Again, it's just it's, it's finding out things like this. The fact that he's how many do we say fourteen caps for Scotland? It's not really a name that that I was too familiar with before this. 
any of those names ring any bells with anybody? No, no I recognise John Bonds there at the back, looking mm. every inch the manager yeah, yeah. we go on to become with Norwich and well, City. He's not changed one bit, is he? It just looks exactly the same. Yeah, the second back row, second from the left. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not changed a bit. So page page thirty nine across the page, we have varsity boys get six goal teaching. And this is goal look at Glasgow University FC or a thump 6-0 by Kilmarnock. It says, University boys earned their place in the first round proper by hard work in the gymnasium when they might have been plotting a demonstration. To these amateurs, however, soccer is a demonstration. It's a demonstration to show that students do other things besides demonstrating. I need to reread that. Was that exactly is that what they wrote? Basically accusing students of just being demonstrators? Yeah, I think so. So the 6-0 spanking was a better result than half the university expected. There were the rugby types who expected them to get a frightful thrashing, it says. That was great. I, I, I played for Edinburgh University when I was there, and we played in, this, in the qualifying rounds of the Scottish Cup, and um, we lost to Annan Athletic. I think Davy Irons was player manager at the time, and um, I think we lost 3-1 maybe. Neil Orr was our manager. Oh, well. Mm-hmm. Ex-Hibs and West Ham. And uh, it was brilliant, brilliant um, event to be part of, though. And got the, went and had lunch and, how oh, would we have lunch? Probably Peebles or something on the way. And then uh, it's a few hundred at the game. And then and the bus back, got the score announced and sports sound and everything else. It was great. But um, I think Annan were, I don't think that's before they were in their leagues, though, I think. Yeah, they would have still been... Um, South of Scotland, I guess, and we were we played in the East of Scotland League, but right. but Davey the, Irons uh, still a class act. No, yeah, he played till he was about forty three or something. Davey Irons, yeah, he was just one of these stylish, yeah, centre half, centre mid sort of feels. A bit like David, not not too dissimilar to David Neri, actually. Probably not quite the player, maybe, but you know, similar kind of style. Yeah, because I remember I was with me and Andrew Clay Bank fans, so he'd, 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 I remember him well at Clay Bank. He was a, he was a terrific player at the Bankies. Yeah. And actually, I'm noticing that story as well. Jim Hasty, I, I do. I'm a pal of mine, Mary Hasty, who was from Glasgow. I do wonder if that was a, if that. Might, I've got a feeling that might be a relation of hers. But um, the, it's the, the the there's been a few universities popping up in the Scottish Cup sometimes. And I always remember in the FA Cup. Do you remember in the FA Cup about 10, 15 years ago? Bath got into the FA Cup first round, and Barry Le, Barry Levetti was playing for them. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, Bizarre thing where uh, I think he'd gone there towards the end of his career to do like a sports science course and it somehow got to the first round of the FA Cup and he was still there, still as boyish peroxide and everything else. Because that's what just springs to mind when you see Barry Levetti, is that haircut? Is that peroxide do? Yeah. So, so on this bit, there's another couple of um, Scottish-based little articles here. Um, I mean, we're getting to the end, of it, so I'll just pick out a couple more. It's uh, agony. So a photo shows goalkeeper Charlie Wright of Charlton with a look of agony on his face as he was unable to do anything to stop Arsenal's John Samuels from opening the scoring. Charlie is on his way down to being on his knees while throwing his arms in there in disappointment. Now, he's Scottish and was with Rangers before moving south. He also represented Hong Kong and won international in 1960, and he managed York City between 77 and 80, and Bolton briefly in 85. Uh, the ref's still busy, so there's a, a little article here saying, Go or bemoaning the number of red cards that have been dished out this season as showing no improvement from last. 
at this stage that there have been 30 all season, the same as the last season as well at the same stage. This is across all four divisions. Yeah, if, if only they could see how things are now, then they wouldn't be moaning too much about that. Lincoln Chase, another Scott in Highlands. Promotion chasing Lincoln, who recently signed Highlander Callum Grant, have swooped in the north again. It's a very football term, that, isn't it? Swoop. There's always people swooping in for players. This time their target is young Bobby McLean, ex-Morton in Ross County inside forward. Bobby has been starring for Inverness Thistle and was recommended by ex-Celt Sammy Wilson, who was player coach up in Dingwall when Bobby first got his senior chance. Now, I, I did have a look. I couldn't find any details whatsoever about Bobby McLean, so I, don't, I have no idea if he, he got his move or anything like that. Did you manage... Did you ever look at that at all, Tom? Find anything? I didn't, no. no. No, there wasn't anything. So the, the one at the bottom here is Cardiff Bound, and this is, again... It says a young Highlander with a German name, but we may have touched on this before that sometimes these little stories group together. So it's like a story about the Highlanders, then there's another one about the Highland Highland football, and I think it's maybe the the journalists or the you know people are writing for them have maybe taken a wee trip up north, and maybe that they're they're going on a wee tour around the Highland towns and things like that, and that's how you get all these little stories together. So this one is a young Highlander with a German name is Cardiff's latest recruit. He is 15-year-old Jim Meissner, a centre-half from Focabers. Is that how you pronounce it? Focabers? In Mauritius? Are we going with that? Anybody want to correct me? Or is Focabers okay? Happy to let you go with that. <laughs> <laughs> genuinely, I don't know. Jim spent his Christmas and New Year holidays at Ninian Park under the watchful eye of Jimmy Schuller. Now the Cardiff boss has signed the youngster on a special schools form and he's been invited back and he started to continue his apprenticeships. Again, no record for Jim playing at any levels, but I know Jimmy Scholar was a, a Scot as well, who was down in England for quite a long time. I'm just going to move on. We've went past a picture of Lulu there. Have a wee pause and have a wee look at Lulu in our prime, and we'll move on. Page 43, league tables. So we can have a wee look at where we are at this point in the season. Uh, as, as you said, Dundee United at this point are in f- fifth position. And 29 points, so 6 points off the top, so that's three, 3 wins, isn't it? Off 2 points for a win. Clay Banker in Scottish Division 2, and we're 2 4 6 from bottom there, Tom. How yeah. was it? How was our season that season? Yeah, I think we, we finished towards the bottom, I that was mm. when we were just sort of building our, our young side, I think, at that time. Right, okay, so there we go. So let, let's see Celtic at the top, Rangers second, St Mirren up there, Kamarnock, Dundee United, and Fairland, Hearts, Hibs. I guess the teams you maybe wouldn't expect to see up there, Clyde, Clyde and Abroth, maybe Wraith Rovers are the teams that you wouldn't really expect to see nowadays in the, the top. Morton, I guess, as well. Yeah, Arbroath, Arbroath that's amazing, really. The, uh, I suppose they're maybe on the, on, the, on the way back up just now, of course. But um, that wasn't, I wonder when the, yeah, when, when the kind of, uh, I suppose it's just two divisions, though. That's the thing, isn't it? You've got to keep remembering that. They're really, they're really about the bottom of div of the championship in modern terms. <laughs> where yeah, you are, yeah. but I find it interesting with the um, the English, the English league as well. If you look, some of the, some of them, because that, because they're much more in the modern format between the four divisions. But it was quite interesting to see a couple like Swansea way down in the bottom of the fourth division, and you can see some of the journeys some of those, some of these clubs have been on. Yeah, true. You don't you don't often see the league tables written like that um, 
these days either split into home matches and away matches. I think that was to do with the pools, was it not? It was to give them as much information as possible. I mean, the the obsession with the pools in this magazine is uh, (laughs) off the hook. Yeah, I mean, I've I've never my dad would like a little. I mean, he wasn't a big better, but he would he would like a little flutter and. It's just none of it rubbed off on me whatsoever. I've I've no idea about perms and things, all that. I've no idea what all that means. I, I doubt you could even teach me it these days. So moving on to page forty-four. So we're getting towards it. So it's just a picture, full full page, black and white photograph of Bobby Moore, West Ham United in England. Probably the second best West Ham captain uh, after Christian Daly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay, and just going to go to the back page here, and it's David Court, who's it's a full-page colour photo of David Court of Arsenal, and he played 175 league games for them between 62 and 70, and he became Arsenal assistant head of youth development in 1996, and is still there to this day. So there we go. That's a mm-hmm. nice wee bit of information there. So we got to the end of the the magazine there. That that's 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 good. I hope you've enjoyed that. That was brilliant. Loved it. Loved yeah, it. yeah. It's it's been fun. So I'm the, just um, I'm just going to give a couple of wee shout outs here. So just as as part of the podcast, what we do is we support. There's a a, a charity which is called West Dumbartonshire Community Food Share, and what we 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 partner up with a charity for each season that we do here. Um, it's just to try and get them exposure and. You know, if we can, if we can raise some awareness and money and support and vo- you know volunteers, whatever's needed, then we do that. So I'm just going to read that a little bit of what they do. So this charitable organisation provides various services and supports to the local community, including the following: school uniform banks, school holiday brunch bags, food provisions, Christmas toy banks, cooking and growing lessons, and a baby bank. They provide essential support to the local community and supporting individuals and families, and we will be looking to support them any way we can through the podcast. This will include drives for donations of food, money, support in the form of volunteers, but we will also be raising awareness of the group to highlight the work that they do, but also to ensure that families and individuals who can benefit from the group are aware of these vital services. And we'll hear a lot more about the West Dunbartonshire Community Food Share in a future podcast and you can follow them on Facebook on Western Bartonshire Community Food Share and that's Dunbartonshire D-U-N and not the Dunbarton um, also keep an eye on our Twitter accounts at shoot TB underscore podcast and at Scott's Footy Cards for updates as well and also we'd like to thank our producer Diane Jardin uh, who has transmissionroom.co.uk that's a rehearsal and recording facilities in Clyde Bank which we use when we're not doing things online if you have a need for that, they're back up and running, so please contact our transmissionroom.co.uk. And as always, we'd like to say a special thanks to Pete Wiley of the Mighty Wah, who's let us use the story of the blues for the music of the show. And you can catch up with Pete on petewiley.co.uk. So saying all that, what what's going on with yourself at, at the moment, Neil? I'm, I'm writing the second series of Guilt. We're, we're, we're shooting that, um, well coronavirus dependent we're hopefully shooting it in the autumn but um so i'm full-on trying to get the the scripts together usually you've got a bit of leeway with these things you can go into pre-production and you're still maybe one script short and you're finishing it off but under current conditions they really need all scripts in the first day because it's such an incredibly complicated process to try and schedule a, a shoot with all the restrictions so i've got a bit of pressure on me but um 
yeah, trying to get the uh, the last uh, couple of episodes done. Is it affecting the way you're writing it? Are you having to think about socially distanced scenes? Yeah, I have. I have to really. You, you're kind of. I'm trying to write it with no more than trying to have lots of scenes with two people, some with three. Try not to have many extras. If you're going to do action stuff, try and make it smart and easy to shoot. And ugh, it's a bit frustrating. You don't really want to have pragmatic restrictions on you as a writer, but you, I think you've just got to see it as a creative challenge. and yeah, Use the obstacle. Yeah, and trying to work around it creatively and make it work for your show, really. So, so just to let you know what we do with each podcast, we, we do a website as well, and each each show has its own web page where we share all the from the magazine that we're discussing so we share all the images and articles and things as well and any right. any stuff we're spoken about that's not in it we'll put links to it as well so if there is anything that, that you want to link to and share on that then i'll be in touch and you can let me know you know if, you, if, if you're involved with any charities yourself or anything like that or you know for for books or websites you're on then we'll, we'll link to that when, when we're doing that. So I'll be in touch about that as well. So on that, listen, thank you very much for, for taking the time. I mean, and I know it's, it's, a, it's a lot of time to to sit down and, and talk about anything, but I've really really enjoyed it. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you for, for joining us. And, yeah, thanks. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it yourself. No, thanks, thanks for the invite. I, I really loved it. And uh, yeah, good luck with uh, the podcast. I'll be listening. And thanks for letting me read the brilliant magazine. Brilliant. Thank you. I appreciate it. So... Uh, I'd just like to say thank you to Tom for being Tom. Thanks, Andy. And thanks to everyone who listens to the podcast. Again, follow us online, follow the website, check out the charity partners and links on, on the websites as well. And until the next time, let's shoot the breeze. <laughs>